Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello again. Here we are staring down another planning season, so get your spreadsheets ready. Here's what else is happening. SAMPS, the Sales and Marketing Professionals in the Sciences, is taking nominations for their annual awards. Life Science Marketing Radio, that's me, is proud to sponsor the Young Person of the Year Award. And just like last year, I will be happy to interview that person on this podcast. So head over to SAMPS.org, that's S-A-M-P-S dot org slash awards and let them know about the awesome person under 30 on your team. Now let's jump into today's episode. All right. I have with me today Maureen Franco and Mike Hodgson, partners of Pre-Commercial. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us, Chris. First of all, Maureen, I'm going to start with you. Explain just for our audience so they have some context what Pre-Commercial does for your clients. Yeah, sure. Pre-Commercial is a marketing strategy company for early stage biopharma companies. So Mike and I have a long history in marketing communications and product launches. And we founded this company to really be help with the commercial partnership, commercial thought uh, leadership, um, and be a thought partner early on. Um, during the clinical program, um, well before launch. Nice. And that's pretty much what we're going to talk about today. And it's come up a couple times on this podcast, but I think it can't be stressed enough probably. So today we're going to talk about first commercial launches and starting early and how that happens to inject a commercial mindset well before your product is approved, which is sort of an outsider. I'm curious about that because I realize, you know, that's probably a hard decision. So um, farmexec.com published a study of 25 of those launches that we're talking about of first products from startups. Tell me a little bit about what those results look like. Yeah, th- this was a really interesting study because there aren't a lot of data out there that show you know, what makes a good launch. So they published this in 2020. Apparently there were 27 pharma companies that launched their first commercial product uh, between 2016 and 2018, and they got data on 25 of them. And they tried to correlate, they used their first um, year's revenue against forecasts to define what a successful launch is. And then they looked back to see what correlated with those who did well. So it was interesting, almost half of them totally missed their forecasts. um, So made 70% or less of it. Um, about 20% met it, and then 30% really blew it out of the water. So, you know, some of this is obviously bad forecasting, you know, either, you know, you know, over, over zealous or sandbagging, but it can't all lead to that, right? It can't be all attributed to that. So they tried to correlate these, these folks that did really, really well, totally outperform their first year forecast. What did they have in common? And some of the interesting things were they started a lot earlier. So two years or greater, well ahead of launch, they started uh, building teams and thinking about commercial. Um, and that correlated with spending more, obviously. So they spent more SG&A, some non-clin, non-reg. Um, and they hired a lot of key executives these two to four years before him. So commercial, marketing sales, medical affairs, patient advocacy. So they really had um, invested in this team 
to really think through, you know, commercialization well ahead of, you know, launch readiness or product launch. So a couple things strike me. I'm first of all just curious about forecasting. How <laughs> other people like you probably know plenty about this, but how are those forecasts made? <clears throat> I certainly understand the sandbagging. How does an overestimate happen and or what's just the general process about how people think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, our, our personal experience and experience with a ton of different clients a lot differently depending on what organization you're in. But um, the good ones have, you know, a lot of uh, competitive intelligence analysis of the market, uh, a lot of forward thinking of what that market's going to be when they actually um, uh, make it uh, a lot of understanding of customers and obviously market access. Um, so a lot of modeling <laughs> and a lot of eyes on it ahead of time. And then, of course, all the external factors come in the street and everything, too, that 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 way at certain ways and obviously executive leadership. But, um, yes, most of the time it's not on the back of a napkin. It's it's a lot of um, uh, rigor that's around it, obviously, uh, right. hopefully led by the commercial team with the other uh, business unit leads. Yeah, a lot of intelligence, I am sure. Then the other question yeah. that popped up was, you know, and we're going to probably dig into that a little bit, but deciding to bring on a commercial team two years pre-approval and again you know with the hope that it's all going to come together right i mean that's a that's a risk yeah. how do companies weigh that how, and obviously it's been successful for those companies you mentioned um but i can imagine if i'm a ceo early on i'm saying we need to put all our resources into just making sure we have yeah something. Yeah. Well, as you know, and we know really well, so much is, especially product approval is always uncertain, <laughs> right? In our industry, it's always uncertain. Um, and I don't know, this might be a silly analogy, but can you think about a tech company waiting until their product, their device actually works before they think about marketing, you know, or commercialization, right? You got you got to start early. You got to really understand the market. So um, it makes sense, but it is a decision, right? Because um, you're really focused on clean and reg early on, rightly so. But your ultimate goal is to get that product in the hands of as many patients as possible. And um, that takes a lot of market knowledge, um, market conditioning, product knowledge, product conditioning, and, you know, company um, execution, too. So I think it's a, it's a mindset, too, we're always trying to engage with. I mean, people look at commercial or marketing or that kind of thought process, and they think of it as an expense. Um, whereas, you know, our point of view is it's, it's not an expense at that stage. It's actually an investment. Um, and not only is it an investment, it's a crucial investment. Um, and it can mean the difference between, you know, a product launch success and a product launch failure. So, uh, that's something we often talk to, uh, with clients about, you know, they're, they're sort of, a you know, there can be a very academic and binary mindset. What, what you just said is like, we just got to get this to market. But the fact of the matter is if you bring a product to market and the market is misunderstood or unappreciated, or there are major gaps that you haven't considered, no matter how good your product is, no matter how valuable it is, um, it's just not going to succeed. Um, and we've seen that before, and and that's something that we that we like to bring to the table and, and really help folks understand because it's 
it's kind of hard to get your head around it if you know you've spent your whole life doing science and you think well what is the rest of this that that mindset's very important to shift um before you get to launch so that answered my next question because it's not simply a matter of shifting a timeline right you can't just say all right now we're starting and right. at whatever point everybody will love this thing when you launch, if you and this is just an interesting psychological thing about any product. When you launch, if you don't make a big impact, the potential peak gets lowered for some reason, right? It, it, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah, and a, and a lot of what we do is we, you know, we're we're that tendency to fall in love with your product is so human. You know, it's it's what we do as humans. It's it's actually what we need to do. You, you have to love this, this thing you've created, but sometimes when you're focused so much on that thing, you don't see everything around it. Um, and, and you know, that, that challenge is, is really crucial, um, as you bring things forward to launch. So, uh, yeah, there's a philosophical aspect to it that is just really fascinating. We, we love to show that to people. Yeah. It, it, it absolutely fascinates me because I always think, well, let's get it right and then start marketing. And of course, people will catch on, but it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so these companies start thinking about their commercial strategy much earlier in the process. Um, talk about what the, the that actually looks like. What what are they doing? You mentioned starting to build teams early on, who they decide mm -hmm. to bring in, and then what do those people do? Yeah, so um, you know, Mike and I have witnessed you know, in, in our previous life, when we ran a full service marketing agency, companies that and we've launched lots of products that came to us really late versus came to us earlier. And that's one of the reasons we started this company is what do those companies do earlier that that was better? And, you know, I, I think that another confusion in our in our industry a lot is confusing marketing with promotion, you know, product promotion, you know, that that comes later. But if you think about it early on, marketing is everything, right? It's every interaction you have with your customer. KOLs to patient ad boards. It's your target product profile, which is so crucial. It's your clinical de design choices, right? Which is your label and market access. It's all the company messaging. So if you think about commercials infused that way throughout the, the major development program and all the milestones there and the critical decisions that need to be made, you know, we talk to clients about the, just the three buckets. How do you understand your market, your market sentiment, which is your disease and the competitive environment? And, and what is it now? But then importantly, how do we think it's going to change when you eventually launch? Um, on the product side, you know, we, we, we worked on a product once that um, they, they were positioning it for bone disease, but this rare disease was actually a multi-systemic disease, right? So as they got data out, you really had to position that product not for bone disease, but for this actual multisystemic. So how are you pre-positioning your product early stage to get ahead of that? And then I think the, the last bucket that really these teams work on is, is really, um, and we do a lot of corporate, you know, co corporate communication and corporate identity and positioning, because obviously before you're talking about your product, you're talking about your portfolio and your company is a name in front of these patients, in front of these thought leaders. And so um, who are you as a company is really important early on as you um, build and define the market. So, so those are a lot of the areas that these early teams work on. I want to hear more about that. Maybe, Mike, you have something to say about who you are as a company. What, describe what that means. for Because I'm, again, thinking like a scientist. I'm a founder, for example. 
and I'm in love with my product. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that triggered that was I had a conversation many years ago um, about positioning for therapeutics. And there's a line to walk because it may end up working on more things than you thought, but you, you, you want to get it specific enough to be successful, yeah. but not so specific that it can't also go somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that's, that's the art of positioning. And it, it's something we help our clients think through, not just product positioning, um, but how their company is positioned. And thirdly, how the disease is positioned. All of those things have to relate to each other. They don't necessarily have to be the same, but they've got to speak to each other and it's got to make sense. Um, you know, for example, if you, if you position your product as a, a life-saving new therapeutic for a rare condition, as a company, that's sort of who you're going to be as well. Um, and you're going to attract a certain kind of person who wants to work on that. So you can start to see how all of these things kind of start relating to each other, who your product is, who you are. And I guess we're talking more about first commercial launches here um, and, and what this disease is all about. You know, for example, if you have a very expensive life-saving therapeutic, but you haven't really talked about the disease as as serious or life-threatening um if it's perceived as more chronic less acute less serious then all of a sudden things aren't matching um so again it's something we really love to get into help people think about the consequences for their decisions right um because each of these decisions early on is incredibly meaningful not just for the next three months, but as you mentioned, you know, especially as you pursue other indications for years and years and years and years down the line, not just for the product, but, but who you are as a company, your, your sense of enterprise value. You know, how do all these things play together? So, you know, again, kind of like what we talked about earlier, people think like, oh, commercial, you know, I'm just really focused on just like making this drug work and bringing it to market. But there's these factors and things to consider that really have long-term implications. Um, and, and that's something, yeah, that we really like to get into and we think it's very important. Yeah. That company position is interesting. Also from what you mentioned at the beginning, who you attract to work for you. Right. right? I mean, it, it goes all the way down to staffing and, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and yeah. beyond. Yeah. So, um, so how does a company define what that first commercial person looks like the person who's going to be in charge i imagine of bringing on a team to do all the things you're talking about and shaping the market how do they decide on what they're looking for what maybe there's a profile that you have in mind and say these are the skills needed what does that look like yeah i think i think some consistent characteristics we see in our clients and and we've worked with a lot of first commercial leaders is um one, they're entrepreneurial, right? They're, they're not in typically in a big pharma with tons of, you know, help around them, talk divisions, right? They need to be doing many different things um, during the day and during their hope. So they have to be entrepreneurial. They have to be able to wear lots of hats, as they say. But the, the other thing that's really interesting is they have to be a real educator, right? So if you're an N of one commercial person, you know, you have to educate 
probably your scientific founder and all the people around you, what's the value of commercial? Why am I here? It's not to, you know, just make our logo look nice, right? Here's, here's what commercial is. And, you know, um, what we try to do too is give them data to do that, right? Customer insights. So you don't need the 900 page market research report, but if you have some customer perception data and things like that, that's real, that's real uh, currency in-house to educate on, um, you know, what commercial is based on the customer insight. Um, and then also using case studies externally too, but whatever, there has to be a lot of, a lot of educating. And then, um, I think you have to be okay with being lonely. <laughs> These commercial people, I think they're the only commercial person sometimes. And they, they really seek out other partnership because a lot of times they need peers that really understand, you know, the strategic thought leadership partnership. That's an extreme, but it's true. A lot of them have told us that, you know, Sometimes, when they, especially when they're before they build a team and they're an end of one, you know, um, they've got to they got to live on their own. <laughs> Does the rest of the company hide from them walking down the hall? Like, oh, there's, yeah. there's a commercial. Guy. It's to an a, education, certain, right? And, yeah, um, I mean, to a certain extent, they represent a cultural change, right? We're not yeah. just here doing this sort of high science of, oh my gosh, we have to sell something, and that sometimes doesn't feel very familiar. Um, I know one story we we heard is it was this head commercial person's first day and they they walked in, sat down, the CEO walked in and said, oh, I'm, well, I'm so glad you're here because we need new business cards. I mean, it's, you know, it was sort of like the first, <laughs> first encounter. <laughs> I, when Maureen mentioned education, I thought we were going to talk about educating the market, not, <laughs> not, not your ex senior executives. <laughs> Sometimes it's both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes it is, and I mean, you know, everyone has their area of focus and area of expertise, but we all bring our own preconceptions into any situation, right? And as soon as you hear a commercial, you think billboards and websites, and that you know, it, it as we all know, it goes a lot deeper than that. Uh, but but if you don't have that experience, you, you don't know. Um, so right, yeah, it can be. Uh, it can be quite interesting. <laughs> so let's talk about like, you know, going outside the building and talk about the concept of disease shaping. Why is that necessary? Yeah. Well, our favorite example uh, really comes from Pfizer and it's, it's from a number of years ago. Well, there, you know, um, there was a condition called impotence uh, way, way back in the day. And Pfizer kind of happened upon this product um that treated it but you know at the time it really wasn't perceived as a disease right it was sort of if you think about the word impotence that's more of a mental yeah. condition right it's, it's right yeah it's not branded it, very well it's, it's not it. branded very well and you can't really treat what literally is a lack of power you know it's 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 more of a mental situation right um so the the genius of what pfizer did was not only did they have a therapy for it, they really thought about how they needed to rebrand the condition. So you can see if you go on PubMed, sort of in the mid to late 90s, all mentions of the word impotence disappear from clinical literature. And you can, you can see it. It's like a steady graph. Um, and of course, it was replaced with erectile dysfunction. Um, yeah. And so if you think about the, the two names, erectile dysfunction versus impotence, 
Well, erectile dysfunction, th that just means something's broken, you know? <laughs> something's dysfunctional. Well, we can fix that. <laughs> we can't right. make it function. Um, and so it becomes less of an emotional name, less of a name around the power, less associated with the sort of lack of will uh, on the account of, of a man, and more becomes about something that's easily fixable with a new medicine. They, they kind of drained all the emotion out of it, right? Uh, and made it more of a, a clinical, comfortable discussion for people. Um, but of course, you know, this, this being the universe in physics, well, nothing can disappear, right? So they, they took the emotion and put it into the name of the product, which is Viagra, right? For almost <laughs> the opposite of impotence. Um, we're giving the power back to you in a form of a, of a, of a fill, right? It's now just a medicine. It's, it doesn't have to be this big thing. So um, I just think that is the most brilliant example. And, and you can sort of use that form of thinking, um, that way of considering a relationship of a disease to a product with really any product coming to market. So we use that example with, with folks we talk to to really help, you know, sort of frame the, the incredible effort and imagination uh, and, and really genius that Pfizer had to not just discover this medicine, but to see its potential and then take all the steps necessary to actually create that marketplace for it. Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic example. One, a story everybody's familiar with. Two, um, you just told a great story about what was behind all that, how it makes it better you know, for Pfizer and also more comfortable for the consumer. <laughs> and really a great example of what would have happened had they not done that. You know, right. all that science that came up with an incredible <laughs> small molecule wasted if if people go, no, I'm not touching that, you know, or I don't have that, right? That's not my yes. problem, right? Yes. Yeah. But, so in, in essence, Pfizer launched two products, right? They, they relaunched the disease with a totally new name, and then they launched their drug. And, and just as you said... If they hadn't rebranded and relaunched the disease, that Viagra never would have become sort of the cultural product juggernaut that it was. So they inherently understood that. And we think that's applicable to just about any company, yeah. any condition, and, and any therapy you're launching. You really got to, you don't necessarily have to rebrand the disease, but you should, you should understand its perception and its relationship to your product. And, and think about it in a, in a, in a, you know, in a very logical, uh, logical way. I would love to sit in on one of those conversations about something, <laughs> you know, far removed from that, yeah. just to see how, how you go through that. Mm -hmm. um, how does a company establish its positioning early? And then how does it help not only externally, but with internal decision-making when you, once you've established a clear position? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what we always say is positioning is an act of will. Okay. So it, it's really a decision um, internally that's, that's made by the company 
Um, and it has to be true. It, it has to be actually who they are, um, but even more importantly, what they aspire to be. Um, positioning is something that you are striving for, um, and that creates an energy on its own, right? Um, so in our experience, yeah, we, we will meet with the executive team and re really try to understand them, what, what their aspirations are for the company, who they are as people. Um, because like I said, it's, it's got to feel true for them, right? Um, it, it's got to feel like a dream that's achievable, something that's real. Uh, and what we help them do is, you know, to a certain extent, is we help them discover who they are and who they want to be. Um, and so it's not really us coming in and saying, you're this. It's as a group discovering it um, and making the choice. Uh, and so that's kind of how it works. And then it, it really goes from there because once they make that choice and believe in it, um, everyone around them starts to believe it too. You start to bring in people. It, it starts to be reflected in your communications. You know, I mean, like I said, it's a decision. And so, you know, we'll help them develop a message platform, really describing who they are. We'll work with external agencies to kind of bring it to life. Um, and then from there, when people come in and interview, uh, they'll find that everyone's speaking the same language. You know, they, it, it's really more about understanding yourself. And, and, and that's powerful because when people know a positioning, they, they almost self-select to be in a company. You know, they, they see what it's about and they know, oh, that's for me or that's not. And so that's sort of the beginning of, of really how to grow a culture. Yeah, I love that. I mean, uh, for scientists, new founders, I mean, that is the most important thing that probably makes them think twice for a second. But mm -hmm. it's also important for people to know who you are not. Exactly. And it's a hard thing exactly. for people to say, yeah. no, it's for everybody. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and then to use that to make decisions, right? If you're a rare disease neuro company, you probably shouldn't be looking at assets in big chronic conditions, right? Um, um, you know, so I, we also see a trickle down. Obviously, if they're going to commit and own a lane, to your point about what they're not, um, they need to stick to that lane or evolve it later on. But but you know, there's there's a such power in um, decisiveness and consistency with these corporate positionings. Yeah, that yeah. you answered. I was going to come back to you and ask about you know the decisions that flow from your positioning and how it makes it easier to do that. And certainly, having focus on some things is one benefit. And do you want to say more about that? Or yeah, no, I, I think you know portfolio. I think the people part is is super powerful. I think we hear when we talk to companies, and we experienced in our previous company when we had a very strong positioning that. Everybody internally speak in the same tune too. So, you know, you interview a candidate at the end of the line and they're like, oh my gosh, everybody is, you know, is really understands your mission and your vision. And, and it's, it's kind of enlightening, but it's because it's one, like Mike said, that, that true part is really important because sometimes we meet with executives and they're like, well, we're patient focused. We're like, okay, but you know, isn't everybody, it has to be ownable. And, and, but what does that really mean? You know? So, um, it has to be believable and it has to be believable from the leadership on down. So um, we've also seen very successful companies from the CEO down to the business unit managers sort of 
um, repeat, but just live and breathe what, what the positioning is that they committed to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, don't, don't get us wrong. Positioning's hard. And I mean, Chris, you mentioned it because, you know, just we talk about sort of human proclivities, right? Like, well, as humans, we want everything. We, we want to be strong and sensitive and, and <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and articulate, but also silence. Um, and positioning is, is really letting things go and becoming who you are and who you want to be. And that is exactly what you said. It's, it's knowing what you're not and, and letting that go. And, and that's what makes it hard is it's, it's really, you know, if you think about the, the academic definition of positioning, it's, it's owning a singular space in a customer's mind. It's not owning multiple spaces. Volvo is not the car that's fast and beautiful. It's the safe car, you know? See, you don't get fast and beautiful with Volvo. You get safe, you know? Um, and, and that's that's what makes it hard as well. And so you, you're just, you just need to let things go. And so um, it's always an interesting process. <laughs> yeah, and that's a fun part of yeah. our job. Because like Mike said, we don't go in and believe me, if you hire someone that comes in that says they're going to tell you your positioning, you should not be working with those people yeah. because they don't know yeah. it, right? They know we, right. we help with the process of getting it out of them. They're the, you know, um, and that's, and, every, and they're all different. And that's, that's the real fun part is, is pulling it out and then weaving it together in something that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But once you, once you get to it, um, it's incredibly valuable. You know, it starts making your decision-making who you hire, Easy. clinical decision. It, it, it just smooths everything out because you know who you are we would do that but not this and and you grow from there so um and i i think they just sorry the the last thing too is um when you talked about how it trickles down it also obviously with your external look and feel and communications in this insanely crowded market right <laughs> of the biopharma world and new ones popping up all the time so many ipos and a hot job market and you have to be able to convey who you are um, as a company, you know, um, very decisively, or you're just going to get lost in the in the sea of uh, biopharmas. And the, the sea of yeah. the world, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're competing. Yeah. For in the marketplace of attention. Yeah. yeah. Last question. Um, and we touched on this a little bit, but how do you, when you all go into a meeting and trying to convince the companies you're working for to devote resources <laughs> when approval is still uncertain. <laughs> What's your approach to that? Well, one, if we're in the door, they kind of are a little bit there, right? <laughs> They're thinking about it at right, least. So right. that's a yeah. positive. <laughs> but, you know, we've worked with so many companies that have done really well and some that maybe have missed a bit and learned things. And so I think um, we use a lot of external examples uh, from what we know, you know, some of it is anecdotal because we've been part of it, not like a, there aren't a ton of data on this, but I think um, using a lot of examples, but then also using, um, you know, customer insights are crazy powerful, right? You know, so sometimes we find that these these early stage companies talk to a couple KOLs or go to one patient meeting and think that they really understand the market. But if you bring in, again, not the 100 page market research deck, but 
But top line sentiment on on the disease and the market and the patient—that's really powerful, powerful data to show the teams that hey, if you if this is what it is here now, and when you launch, say three years from now, you don't want it to be that way. <laughs> you know, you want it to be here, based on all these things. Um, you need time to do that, and the time to invest is now. And um, the other thing is, this isn't. Um, we don't work with large pharma for the most part. We're mostly with you know mid-size and large biotech, a lot of small. So th these aren't massive budget numbers in the scheme of things. Um, and so we put that in perspective too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what we yeah. try to convey is, you know, we understand where they're coming from. We, we know where they are. And to a large extent, we've been there and, and we don't want to sell them things. We want to actually help them. That's, that's why we're doing this. I mean, yes, it's our jobs, but, um, but above that, like, you know, we're, we're just fascinated by the spaces they're in. I mean, these are typically entrepreneurial people. They're, they're really trying to change the world. They're, they're trying to save people's lives. And, and we're very, very driven by that. Um, and we think what we can bring is, is, um, an ability to magnify their effect. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the spirit we, we approach um, that with. And, uh, and yeah, so far it's, it's working really well. I like that. Well, Maureen Franco and Mike Hodgson, I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk to me today. I will, if it's all right with you, put your LinkedIn links in the show notes, as well as a link to pre-commercial, of course. So anybody who's, wants to talk to you a little bit more about this can certainly do so. And yeah, thank you again. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Chris. It's fun. My pleasure. I hope this episode will give some confidence to companies still in the approval process around beginning their commercial efforts. This isn't restricted to therapies. Shaping the market in advance of an instrument launch has merit as well. And I covered this in one of my early podcasts with Taia Ergeta. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. As always, please share the podcast with your colleagues, and I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye-bye.